It has been said that our spiritual life will never rise above our prayer life. As air is to breathing, so prayer is to our walk with the Lord. In a recent survey, it was reported that nearly nine out of every ten Americans claim to pray on a regular basis. 75% of Americans said they pray every single day. 64% said they pray multiple times a day. Yet practically speaking, we give only five to seven minutes to this all-important task of prayer. Truth be told, we will spend more time eating and drinking coffee, driving to work, and brushing our teeth as we will in prayer. Some of us have spent more time already this morning on our Facebook page then we will give to God all day long in prayer. The history books tell us that Martin Luther prayed some three hours a day. That Jonathan Edwards spent hours uh, in prayer on the banks of the Hudson River. Charles Simeon woke up every morning at 4 a.m. to begin a four-hour prayer routine. I bring this to your attention not to shame you or guilt you. It's merely causing a question to erupt in my mind. Why is there such a discrepancy in the prayer life from saints of old to saints of today? For most of us, our prayers have become anemic. And we wonder, why is there no more power in our prayers? I realize that we live busy lives in busy times with busy schedules. I also understand that our communication in the 21st century is faster, sleeker, and more succinct. It used to be that we would write a lengthy letter. Now we just shoot a text or an email. We used to be involved in extravagant correspondence, and now we just uh, post a message on a personal timeline. I understand that our communication style is much faster these days, and I wonder if we've taken that philosophy into the prayer closet. Yet regardless, this morning I think that Jesus has something to say to all of us regarding prayer. Today we continue our sermon series entitled The Good Life, whereby we examine the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher to have ever lived. We find ourselves in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 15. I invite you to focus your attention upon that passage. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 6, we'll begin at verse 5, we'll read through verse 15. Please hear the word of Christ. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I'll tell you the truth, they've already received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, 
your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. In our passage this morning, Jesus gives us three principles of prayer. The first is this. Prayer is conversational communion. Prayer is conversational communion. Jesus begins, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray standing in the synagogue or on the street corner in order to be seen by men. In a similar fashion as in the previous passage, Jesus says, when you pray, not if you pray. We remarked last week that when Jesus spoke about generosity, he said, when you give, not if you give, because God's people are to be a generous people. Well, this week he tells us that God's people ought to be a praying people. It's not if you pray, but when you pray. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. That word hypocrite is still around in our time today. It's usually a derogatory term that's slapped upon any person who is a phony follower of Christ. It's usually placed upon a religious person by a non-religious person when that non-religious person sees an inconsistency in the lifestyle of that so-called religious individual. So the world says to the church, you are a hypocrite. In the days of Jesus, Jesus literally just lifted that word out of the theater. The word hypocrite in the days of Jesus literally meant an actor on the stage. An actor on a stage would masquerade in a costume and a mask. He would portray a character that wasn't genuine to his identity. And Jesus says that's how the religious people of our day pray. They are nothing more than hypocrites. They walk around with the mask of religiousosity, but really they're just phony followers. They're not being genuine. They're portraying an image that's not consistent with the identity of who they are before God. Now, Jesus is describing the prayer life of the Pharisees and the scribes. It would have been shocking for Jesus to call them hypocrites. That's exactly what he does. In fact, later on, he'll specifically call them pagans. They act as if they don't even know the Lord. Why? Because for them, religion had become a show. The Pharisees taught that every religious person had to pray at least three times a day at 9 a.m., at high noon, and at 3 in the afternoon. On those three occasions, they taught that whatever you were doing, you were supposed to stop, drop everything, and pray to God. Now they, as Pharisees and scribes, would conveniently find themselves in the synagogue during those hours. They would conveniently find themselves in highly trafficked areas in the marketplace. So when it was 9 a.m. or high noon or 3 in the afternoon, they would find themselves at a busy intersection. They would find themselves in the synagogue. They would stop what they were doing. They would stand and say in loud, grandiose ways, they would pray prayers unto the Lord. And Jesus says those prayers are not even getting off their lips. They're falling onto the dirt pavement beneath them because God is not listening to them because their religion is nothing more than a show. They're praying not for the attention of God, but for the applause of men. So Jesus says, so when you pray, you go into your closet, you close the door, 
And just talk to your Father who's in heaven. And your Father who is unseen will see what you do in secret and He will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep on babbling like pagans. For the scribes and Pharisees taught that if you use repetitive phrases, if you use flowery words, then the chances of your prayers being heard by God would grow exponentially. Now this morning, I want to be very clear. Jesus is not condemning public prayers. I mean, Jesus prayed in public. Jesus is not even condemning repetitive prayers. Need I remind you in the Garden of Gethsemane, It is Jesus who prayed the very same prayer three times. Lord, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Lord, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Lord, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is not ridiculing public praying. He is not ridiculing repetitive prayers. He's not ridiculing saying the same prayer over and over again. What he is ridiculing is when we pray for the attention of men instead of the applause of God. So he says, prayer is conversational communion. So you need to carve out intentional time in your schedule where you get alone with the Lord. Go into your closet, shut the door, remove the distractions, and talk to your Heavenly Father. This past week, it dawned on me that when I'm expecting an important phone call, and I receive that phone call, There are times I will want to silence the noise that's around me. I will want to go into a a small room. I want to close the door. Sometimes I even put my finger up to my ear as if to close in, in order to listen intently to what the person is saying on the other end of the phone. If I do that for a human, how much more should I do that for my Heavenly Father? He is the King of the cosmos, and He invites us into a conversation. He invites us into communion with Him. He implores us to come, for He says, I've got something to tell you, and I want to hear what you have to say to me. So Jesus says, prayer is conversational communion. How arrogant it is of us for us to say, we don't have time to get along with God. We have other things that are more pressing. We have other things to do. We need to drink our coffee. We got to drive to work. We got to check our Facebook page. We've got to brush our teeth. We have more important things to do than to get alone, carve out some space and time where we can get alone with God. And that, my friends, is the epitome of arrogance because the king of the cosmos is inviting you to pray. The king of the universe is inviting you, pleading with you, saying, I've got something to share with you, and I want to hear what you have to share with me. It was Thomas Merton who said, we pray because we are living in completeness. He says, we are a gap. We have an emptiness. And it's out of that emptiness that we pray as a longing for fulfillment. It is when we realize that we are empty before God. We are a gap. We are not whole. We are not complete. For we are living in completeness. And we go to God in prayer and we plead with him to make us whole again. C.S. Lewis said prayer is this. It comes from the I-thou relationship when the real I speaks to the real thee. That is prayer. When the real I speaks to the real thee. Jesus says your father in heaven He wants to talk with you. 
Your Father in heaven wants to hear what you have to say because prayer is conversational communion. There's a second principle. Jesus says prayer is also relational reverence. Prayer is relational reverence. Jesus gives us what we call the Lord's Prayer. And in this prayer, he says, this then is how you ought to pray. If you look closely at the words of Jesus, he specifically says, this is how you are to pray. He doesn't say, this is what you are to pray. So it seems that Jesus is giving us a model of how we ought to pray. So embedded in the Lord's Prayer are a couple of principles that we would do well to emulate in our talking with the Lord. Now let me also be very clear, there is nothing wrong with us quoting the Lord's Prayer verbatim. There's nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, if that is what we pray, that's probably a pretty good exercise. The truth of the matter is, we as a church, we don't uh, pray the Lord's Prayer often enough. But let's be honest that Jesus tells us not what to pray, but he tells us how to pray. And we approach God with relational reverence. The first line says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I know this is the prayer that God gives to the church, the entire congregation in the crowd, because he uses the first person plural pronoun, our. If it was just a personal prayer for your own private closet, he would have said the first person singular, my father. But Jesus says, when you pray, say our father. So this is a prayer that's given to the entire church. This is instruction that's given to the entire community. Our father. The word father is a very intimate personal term. In fact, it would have shocked everyone on that Palestinian hillside to hear the rabbi from Galilee address the God of the cosmos as father. It's a word that can also be understood as daddy. They would have heard Jesus and they would have said, is he actually calling God, who is the infinite sovereign creator, matchless, majestic Messiah? Is he calling our God daddy? And Jesus would have said, exactly, that's what I'm doing. I'm calling him daddy. It's reminiscent of what a toddler might do as he waddles up to his father and All he can muster are the phrases, da-da. It's very similar to what a teenage son will do when he comes up to his father and says, hey, dad, I need to talk with you. Hey, dad, I, I need your advice. Hey, dad, you got a minute? It's that intimate, personal relationship of a father to a child as that child comes and says, hey, dad, our father who art in heaven. We come to God because we have a relationship with Him in Christ. We come to Him and we approach Him. He invites us to come out of that relational aspect. But with that relationship, there also comes reverence. For the very next line says, um, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The word hallowed literally means holy. Of all the words in all of the Bible to describe God, the one word that is used most often is the word holy. Our God is many things, but make no mistake about it. He is holy God. He is a holy daddy. The only word in all of Scripture that's placed in a triple superlative fashion is the word holy. We find it in Isaiah chapter 6 when the six-winged creatures, seraphs, 
when they fly and they have a song on their lips and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, the angels are singing the same song with a different tune. They're just saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The only word that you will ever find in the Bible to describe God in a triple superlative fashion is the word holy. Holy, holy, holy. You'll never find a description in the 66 books of the Bible where it says God is love, love, love. God is grace, grace, grace. God is mercy, mercy, mercy. Now, certainly God is love and God is grace and God is mercy. But the one word that describes our God is the word holy. He is set apart. He is distinct. There is no one like him. He's in a class all by himself. He is a holy daddy. So you and I approach God with a relational reverence. As the ones doing the praying, we have to wrestle to keep that proper balance of relational reverence. Because there are times we can approach God and we can emphasize the relational to the neglect of the reverence. And when we do that, we approach God in a far too flippant fashion. There are other times that we emphasize the rigid reverence to the neglect of the relational. And we describe a God who appears to be aloof and distant and disinterested in the cares and concerns of our lives. So as the one doing the praying, we have to maintain a proper balance of relational reverence when we go to God. Not too many years ago, I came across a t-shirt that emphasized the, emphasized the relational aspect. The t-shirt just simply said, Jesus is my homeboy. Now, I understand the sentiments of that t-shirt. I get that. I understand that Jesus is a friend of sinners. He certainly is a friend of sinners. He's no friend to sin, but he is a friend of sinners. So the person who made this t-shirt said, Jesus is my homeboy. Now, actually, I wanted to make a t-shirt after seeing that one. And on my t-shirt, I would have said that Jesus is my sovereign savior who selected me for his service. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is the resurrection and the life. He's the way, truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And by the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, but I ran out of t-shirt space. I get it. I understand. Jesus is my homeboy, but he's a holy homeboy. We approach God with relational reverence. We dare not approach him in too uh, flippant of a fashion. We dare not approach him as if he is not concerned or interested in us with rigid reverence. There is a balancing act of relational reverence. Need I remind you what the author says? In the letter to the Hebrews, when he says, we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. For he, being Jesus, was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he was without sin. So approach the throne of grace with confidence, with boldness, and you'll find mercy and grace to help in time of need. We approach this great, awesome God of the cosmos. We approach him as holy daddy, for we have relational reverence. Not only does Jesus say that when you pray, you have conversational communion, and when you pray, you have relational reverence, but there's a third principle in this passage, that when we pray, we have desperate dependency. Desperate dependency. This then is how you pray. With 
desperate dependency. Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. There is desperate dependency in those words. Most of us would do well to have a healthy dose of desperate dependency in our walk with Christ and in our prayers unto the Lord. Jesus says, you are desperately dependent upon God for daily bread. Sometimes our success is our greatest setback. What I mean by that is for us, sometimes it's hard to pray for daily bread when you have a week's worth of bread in the cupboard. Sometimes it's hard to pray for more physical needs to be met when you believe you can meet most of your needs from the money that's in your bank account that comes from a hard-earned job which you are able to perform. Sometimes our success is our greatest setback. Jesus says every morsel you eat comes directly or indirectly from the benevolent hand of God. Every dollar that you have, every dollar that you save, every dollar that you spend, it comes from the benevolent hand of God. We are desperately dependent upon God. If he did not give, we would not receive. God is the one who gives us everything that we have. I came this morning to tell you, I am not a self-made man. I am a savior saved man. Everything in my life has been given to me directly or indirectly by the mighty hand of God. It is because of God that I have food on my table. It is because of God I have clothes on my back. It is because of God I have a roof over my head. It's because of God I've got a car in my garage. It's because of God I have a calling upon my life. It's because of God I have salvation for all of eternity. It's because of God I have a family to love. It's because of God I have friends to cherish. It's because of God. I am not a man who believes in sola bootstrapa, which means you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I believe in sola Christos, in Christ alone. I believe in sola gratia, by grace alone. I believe in sola Deo, by God alone. I came this morning just to tell God, thank you. I'm glad you're here today. I want you to know I love you. The smiles on your face minister to me, but I didn't come today just to see you. I came to the house of God because I heard that the God of the house was going to be here and I just had to tell him, thank you for my blessings. Thank you for my provision. Thank you for my gift. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for my salvation. Oh God, I come in desperate dependency and all I have to say is thank you, God. So Jesus says we come to God in desperate dependency, not only for physical needs, but also spiritually needs. Forgive us our debts. As we forgive our debtors. Did you realize that if it wasn't for God, there is no way that you could stand innocent in God's sight? If it wasn't for the accomplished work of Jesus Christ, there is no way that you could forgive yourself for all of eternity. There's no way that you could be pure and innocent in the presence of God. If it wasn't for the forgiveness of God, you would not receive a forgiveness that is full and free and forever. 
If it wasn't for the accomplished work of Jesus, there's no way you could be accepted and adopted and approved as a child of God. If it wasn't for Christ, there's no way you could say in the words of the Apostle Paul, therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. If it wasn't because of Jesus, there's no way we would exist, breathe, move, or have our being, and there's no way we could stand in the very presence of God. You do realize that you are a one-breath creature. You're one breath away from death. If God were to cause to stop the inhalation and exhalation, then you would cease to exist. All of us are one breath creatures, one breath away from death, but it is God who sustains. And God says, out of your desperate dependency, when you come to me as a spiritual beggar on bended knee with head down, cast eyes closed, arms outstretched, palms open headward, it's in that posture and that position that I give you forgiveness. And then Jesus said, not only do you need desperate dependency to receive forgiveness, but you need desperate dependency to show forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. The last two verses in 14 and 15 of this passage, Jesus gives, and can I just say, the scariest statement in all the Bible. Jesus says, if you forgive men the sins against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. My friends, those are the scariest statements on the lips of Jesus, I think, in all of the Bible. One theologian put it this way, that when the door is shut, it's shut both ways. That if you have shut the door of forgiveness towards someone else, you've also shut the door of forgiveness from God to you. If you open the door of forgiveness of God's blessing upon your life, then you are enabling yourself to open the door of issuing forgiveness unto somebody else. Now Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, has been hitting this very hard. He's been talking about being a peacemaker. He's been talking about being reconciled with your brother, reconciled with your, even your enemies. And here he says, unless you forgive those who have something against you and have done something against you, then your father cannot forgive you. For God, forgive us of our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Jesus says there is an inextricably tied connection between the forgiveness we receive from God and the forgiveness we show unto others. And he's been hitting this time and time again. So once again, I ask the same question I've been asking before. Is there someone in your life that has hurt you and harmed you? Jesus is not saying you don't have a right to revenge. He's not saying that somehow you don't have a right to retaliate. He's not belittling the fact that you really want to nurse a grudge. He's just saying for your own spiritual sake, you better forgive them. For your spiritual well-doing, you better forgive them. Forgiveness is learning how to set the prisoner free only to discover that you were the prisoner. You forgive someone, yes, because it's the right thing to do, but you forgive someone because it's for your own good. Jesus says, if you don't forgive, your Father in Heaven won't forgive you. But if you do forgive, it opens the door for your Father in Heaven to forgive you. Jesus says we are desperately dependent upon this forgiveness. I don't know about you, but it's, uh, it's hard for me to forgive myself and sometimes it's hard for me to forgive others. I cannot do that unless I'm desperately dependent upon God, my Savior. And then Jesus also says that we are desperately dependent upon God to lead us from temptation. If you don't, if you only pray, once you find yourself uh, 
in the midst of temptation, when temptation rears its alluring head, if you wait until that moment to pray, it's probably too late. The battle's probably over. Jesus gives us an example of how to pray. We pray before we even get there. We say unto God in open honesty and confession, Oh Lord, I am so twisted and tainted by my own iniquity. Uh, There's everything inside of me that's touched by my own sinfulness that if it's left up to me, I will go down a path of self-destruction. So Jesus, you've got to lead the leash. Jesus, you've got to be the one who's in control. Jesus, you've got to guide my steps. You lead me from temptation because if you don't, then I will go down a path of certain self-destruction and I will follow the lead of the evil one. So Jesus, I am desperately dependent upon you Jesus says this is how you pray this is how you pray for prayer is conversational communion prayer is relational reverence prayer is desperate dependency we pray not merely because we're told to or taught to called to or commanded to we pray because we need to we pray because we realize that our spiritual life will never rise above our prayer life. We realize that as air is to breathing, so prayer is to our walk with the Lord. We pray because we need to. We pray because we have to. So, we hear the words of that great spiritual. Lord, listen to your children pray. Lord, send your spirit in this place. Lord, listen to your children praying. Send us power. Send us love. Send us grace. I don't know about you, but that's my plea. That's my prayer. Lord, listen to your children praying. Lord, send your spirit in this place. Lord, listen to your children praying. Send us power. Send us love. And send us grace. So if we listen closely, we hear Jesus this morning. And he invites us to pray. One of the prayers that Jesus elevated as a prayer that's always heard in the throne room of God was a prayer that was found on the lips of a tax collector. It was seven words in its entirety. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said that man went home justified. And all he did was pray, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And maybe this morning there's someone here and you need to pray that for the very first time. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I acknowledge who you are. I acknowledge who I am according to your word and I need you. So Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Maybe some of you are here and you've been walking with the Lord for a very long time. But let's be honest, you pray very little. This morning, let the first prayer of your reunion be, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And may you and I Walk out of here justified in the sight of God. So if we listen closely, we will hear Jesus say, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And God, you are our daddy. And we need to talk. And we need your help. And we need your guidance. Oh, oh, Daddy, we, we come to you asking that you will today give us daily bread. And today, give us forgiveness. And today, that you will lead us to forgive others and lead us from temptation. Oh, Lord, today, we are desperately dependent upon you. If there's someone listening to my voice who has never accepted Christ as Savior, Daddy, today, will you please move upon their heart by the power of your Spirit? 
for believers who are here, but they have neglected prayer. I, I ask that today there will be a sweet reunion of child to father. Lord Jesus, we love you. We need you. We thank you for who you are. We give you this invitation. In Jesus' name we pray.